0: Matchbook presents First Years, a podcast for all, but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today we're talking about owls. Welcome to episode one of First Years. I am so happy to have you all here and I'm so excited for you to be on this journey. I'm actually pretty jealous that you're getting to go through this magical adventure for the first time. I only remember bits and pieces of my Harry Potter journey. I've lived and breathed Harry Potter for so long that it's hard to remember what I didn't know and when, except for certain details, which I won't talk about now. We'll get there. The important thing is you're here. You've decided to read Harry Potter for the first time. Whether that's because your children are reading it, you have lots of friends who have begged you to read it and you're finally giving in, you've only ever watched the films, or maybe you lost a bet or something. Regardless of the reason you're here, I'm thrilled that you are. One quick note is that if you like what you hear in this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you're listening on. If you leave your name in Hogwarts House, I'll give you a shout-out on here and you'll win house points. We will be giving away a house cup every couple of books or so, so if you'd like to win, please rate and review and get all of your housemates to do so as well. If you don't know your Hogwarts house yet, which you might not because you're here with me reading Harry Potter for the first time, you can take the quiz created by JK Rowling herself at wizardingworld.com. We'll also be having opportunities to win house points over on our Twitter and Instagram, so be sure you're following First Years Pod on both of those platforms. I did a little pre launch challenge for people, and as of recording this episode, Slytherin is in the lead, followed by Hufflepuff, Gryffindor is in third, and Ravenclaw is in fourth place. If you'd like to change those stats, you know what to do. For today's episode, you only need to have read chapter one of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, or Philosopher's Stone, depending on what country you're living in, and have a working knowledge of Harry Potter, which I'll go over now. You'll need to know that Harry Potter is an orphan who lives with his aunt and uncle, that Harry Potter is a wizard and goes to a school called Hogwarts School for Witchcraft and Wizardry. This is where we'll spend most of our time over the next seven books, that wizards use owls for communication instead of a postal service run by people, and that non-magical people are called muggles. Other than that, you're good to go. And don't worry, we're staying spoiler-free. I'll always let you know how far you need to be before our discussions. One side note that I want to cover before we continue, the biggest thing I hear from adult first-time Harry Potter readers who begin to read and then put it down is that they just couldn't get into it or that it reads young. I get it. In fact, I agree with it for the first couple books. The first book is even hard for me to reread, mainly because I know the story so well and the first couple movies are so close to the books that it's, dare I say, a little boring to reread. At least it was until I started this podcast and found little details here and there for us to discuss, but I get it, it does read young. But if you come across this problem, I urge you to stick it out. Why? Well, think about it. J.K. Rowling wrote this first book for children, but Harry Potter is not a children's book series. We follow Harry from the age of 10 through 17, and think about what someone goes through between the ages of 10 and 17. We totally cover plot events about growing up, like crushes, like out-of-control emotions, like loneliness, learning about injustices, And keep in mind that J.K. Rowling's readership was growing up with the books. So the books grow up too. Today's Harry Potter fans are not children. We're adults. Many of us are married and have children. That's where all the Harry Potter themed weddings, baby showers, and classrooms come in. And the fact that it's still so huge and prominent in our lives speaks to the influence it's had on us. And speaks to how not a children's book it is. Think about all the other children's books that you've read in your lives. Which ones do you still go back to and talk about to this day? Probably not many. I recently attended LeakyCon, which is a three-day convention focusing solely on Harry Potter. Yes, it's as amazing as it sounds. And I have to say that kids were in the minority when it came to attendees. Most of us took time off work and, yes, could sit at the bar drinking Potter-inspired cocktails. So trust me not just a kid's book. If you can make it through books one and two, I promise the darker themes and bigger plot points start popping up in book three. Just a little determination needed. And lucky for you, books one and two are the shorter ones. By the time you get to the hulking book four, you'll be eating it up, I promise. So with that said, owls. The book opens up on the Dursleys and we follow Vernon throughout his entire normal, thank you very much, day. On page two, the line goes, None of them noticed a large, tawny owl flutter past the window. Our first introduction to magic is an owl. Our first hint that something isn't quite normal is the owl passing by that they don't notice. After that, Vernon notices the cat outside who is acting strangely. How you doing, Professor McGonagall? Then he sees a few weirdly dressed people out and about, gets grumpy about it, goes into work, and sits with his back to the window, where he then doesn't see all of the owls flying past. What's interesting here is that the Dursleys are used as a way to introduce us to the muggle perspective, either not noticing things or explaining weird stuff away. They don't notice the first owl by the window, and Vernon has his back turned away from the window in his office. Sure, people are seeing the owls and shooting stars and weird phenomena all around, but that's because a lot of magic is being used in the wizarding world from everyone celebrating you-know-who being defeated. Normally, they either wouldn't notice or would find some excuse to shrug off whatever they saw, like Vernon does. And what's even more incredible about this is that Vernon knows about wizards. We learn that right away when the Potters are name-dropped on page 1. The Dursleys, Mr. and Mrs. Normal, thank you very much, know about magic and the Potters as Harry's mother was Petunia's sister. And we might not know right away that this community is full of wizards, but at this point, we know just from context, from the cultural phenomena that Harry Potter has become, that Harry's family were wizards and Vernon and Petunia are not about it. Magic goes against everything they stand for. And going along with that, the word wizard isn't used until chapter four. And I'm pretty sure the word magic isn't used until then either. So what does it mean that owls are our first hint of something else going on? Wizards use owls to carry letters to one another and owls bring the paper every morning. They are a huge part of wizarding communication. So in a way, the existence of one is communicating to us that something out of the ordinary is going on on this Tuesday. But what kind of message is it sending? I dove into owl symbolism and meaning in various religions and cultures to see if I could find out. When I first set out to research owls, I expected to find info I already knew, that they are symbols of wisdom, and I could talk about how that ties into magic and wizardry in this book, but I found out so much more. It was fascinating, and it makes our discussion that much stronger today. The symbol and meaning of owls varies from culture to culture, so let's go over a few examples and then discuss what it means in the bigger context for the magical world. And I want to make a disclaimer here. You might notice that my tenses switch between past and present when I'm talking about different groups of people. This is directly influenced by the tense in which the article I'm referencing was written, and I want to make it clear that many of the groups that I talk about still exist and are a part of our society today, and I don't want my use of tense to erase them. I also want to make it clear that regardless of what tense I use when referring to different groups, that I'm not in a position to say whether these beliefs are still held today or not. Let's start with the positive. Owls, as many of you may know, are a symbol of the Greek goddess Athena. She's the goddess of wisdom and war and handicraft, and thus the owl became a protector to Greek armies in battle. If an owl flew over them, it was a sign of victory, and their association with hunters and warriors didn't end with Athena. Some Native American beliefs associated owls with them due to their silence and efficiency as predators. Feathers could also help bring victories in both hunting and war, bringing bravery to those who had them. The Asinay of Texas considered the owl such a positive symbol that just hearing it brought on a cheer as if in victory, regardless of if a battle had taken place or not. Cherokee warriors wore owl skins and feathers when scouting, and who did like them to scare off enemies? They also listened for the screech owl because they could foretell victory and defeat. For the Tecora Hiata tribe, owls were considered to be a protective spirit for warriors, and Cheyenne warriors also attached feathers to their shields, while creek warriors carried them for good night vision in fights. Owls appeared on archaic Chinese bronzes and held the symbol as a protector. They had the power to protect people and ward away evil. It was also said that shamans who wore the skin of the eagle owl were safe from evil spirits, as the eagle owl devours them. There's a set of German pottery jugs in the form of owls that date to the 16th century, and there's been a lot of discussion of their origin and what they represent. Some believe that they were prizes for an archery contest, while others believe they were gifts from the emperor, which to me seems like it might show the importance of owls at that time and in that society and i have to add that this document i read said that quote potters have commonly taken the owl as their symbol unquote and like how fitting is that for our discussion i love it people believe this is because of their nightly relationships with their kilns owls first appeared on athenian coins in the late 7th century bc and this is before their association with athena it's thought that the coins served as talismans against negative forces this belief of these birds as protectors continues with the Kwakiutl praying to the owl for protection from evil and the Menominee tribe's legend that the owl gave the gift of medicine to them. The Kwakiutl also believed that owls must not be killed because owls were connected to the soul. On another note, when we just straight up google owl symbolism, we get that owls represent old souls and are prophets who can see and feel events before they happen or that they are messengers who need to relay something to those who see them. Owls were considered prophets in many different ways, and funnily enough, one of them was foretelling the weather. In England, a screeching owl meant cold weather or a storm will arrive. The Iroquois believed it meant snow or a change in the current weather. And the Omaha, Osage, and Pawnee tribes believed it to be a sign of fair weather. The beliefs of prophecy continue into the negative context often with people believing that owls foretold death or illness when they flew by or were seen out of normal context. In early Rome, the hoot of an owl signified death, and during the 18th and 19th centuries in Britain, it was believed that if an owl screeched as it flew by the window of someone who was sick, that they would die shortly thereafter. In Apache belief, streaming of an owl was a sign that death was approaching. The same went for the Cocopa warriors. Meanwhile, the Kalapuya believed an owl hooting by a house meant that a child or a relative would die, and according to the Choctaw, sudden death was signified by the screech of the horned owl. The idea of foretelling or even causing death was also present in pre-Islamic Arabia, where it was thought that omens were brought by owls, that their simply landing on a house meant the death of a family member residing inside. So... Due to this outlook on owls shared by many cultures, it shouldn't be surprising to us that owls in some cultures were considered demonic. I read an article about the Ashaninka, people of Peru, and they believed in both good and evil spirits. They considered spirits as, quote, immortal, powerful, capable of rapid flight and of instantaneous transformation, unquote. Uh, hi, Professor McGonagall. Although she isn't immortal and can't fly, but she is capable of instantaneous transformation and I would probably argue that she's very powerful. And we see Dumbledore appear at the end of the street suddenly and owls are flying all over the place in this chapter. The Ashaninka believe that good spirits possess flight, but ultimately don't consider owls as good. All owls fall into the demon category and, like I mentioned earlier, a passing one causes illness and the sight of or attack from one brings death. Not only that, but demons reside in the actual territories of these people, lurking, as the article uses, and are always a threat. So what else constitutes a demon? Well, as I'm sure is no surprise to anyone, witchcraft is a demonic activity. Sorry, Harry and friends. And the Ashanika consider anything that can do physical harm to people and anything that would be a bad example for people to imitate a demon. This makes me think of the Dursleys. They are so pro-normal that anything of the wizarding community would be outrageous for them to imitate. Vernon hates those out in public with robes on and thinks everyone who doesn't follow the status quo of the muggle world as they'd like it to be not worth associating with. Let's move into Nage folk ornithology from Eastern Indonesia for a second. They consider owls as, quote, witchbirds, unquote, which are, quote, believed to manifest witches, malevolent spiritual beings whose normal form is a human being, unquote. They also attribute flesh-eating, being nocturnal, killing, having, quote, eerie vocalizations, unquote, and abnormal contortion to witches and witchbirds, birds. Going back to pre-Islamic Arabia, owls were very present in their poetry, where they were connected to life, death, and the afterlife. A custom called watering the grave was used to placate the dead, who might come back as an owl for vengeance in an unsolved matter. Al-Masudi, an Arabic historian, geographer, and traveler wrote, the owl, quote, is always savage and shrieking. And it is alone in the desolate dwelling and the sepulchres and where slain men fall and where death occurs," unquote. He also discusses the owl as a form of an afterlife so that someone may learn of their family after they die. Owls were also considered, quote, death's dreadful messenger, unquote, and were frequently used in metaphor in Arabic poetry to evoke despair and loneliness of man. There are four to five parts to these poems, the opening, the heroic travel sequence, the self-praise, the praise of tribe or patron, and or the satirical invective. When used in the opening, the owl, quote, heightens the feeling of loss and despair, unquote, while in the travel sequence it, quote, contributes to an oppressive atmosphere of impending doom, unquote, with foreshadowing of danger, struggle, and death. In invective poetry, there exist connections to ancient curse formulas, And an owl present in this would have been considered a death threat with a terrible afterlife. Some poets also used the owl and its associations to depict death. For example, quote, the screaming of a burnt man or the voice of an owl, unquote. Through this, we see that an owl's connection to death depicts the real possibility of people's futures back then. Even now, death being inevitable for us. And with that cheerful thought, let's continue to discuss more connections of owls and death. The Menemone tribe believed of the visual of owls guarding graves to make sure they weren't disturbed. The Ashikimi thought the owl a malignant spirit to which they needed to worship and give offerings to. I even read about parents using the owl and its meanings as a way to control their children. So they needed to behave to avoid being carried off. Some of the natives of California believed that quote, the brave and the virtuous became great horned owls. The wicked, however, were doomed to become barn owls unquote. And can we talk about this for a sec? Poor barn owls. Those are my favorite kind of owls and they're so cool because they fly almost perfectly silently and they're gorgeous. I definitely get a barn owl to communicate if I lived in the wizarding world, but I digress. In the Sierras, they believed the great horned owl captured and carried the souls to the underworld. Among many native tribes, the great horned owl and the screech owl were seen as dangerous because they have tufts on their heads that look like horns, which connected them to the underworld. Some tribes considered them as transformed souls of the dead. The Aztecs and Maya thought that owls were in company of the gods of death. The Cherokee believed that, quote, evil spirits, ghosts, and witches, unquote, could appear in the bodies of owls. Going back to the point mentioned earlier of medicine, owls were instruments of good and bad medicine. For the Apache, those who dreamed of death or had heard the call of an owl could go to an owl shaman for an owl ceremony. The Tohono O'odham used owl feathers and ashes to help treat those who were ill. Healers sought out spiritual help from owls in many tribes for guidance, but at the same time there was a threat that they could be drawn to power that could harm others. Witches were those that practiced bad medicine and they could shift into owls. Many people didn't have the knowledge to differentiate a real owl from a witch shifted into one, so they were all avoided. And does anyone think of muggles and wizards in regards to this? There's really no way of telling who is who unless wizards wear their robes out and about. So looking at all of this, the duality of owls and the beliefs around them is clear. Owls can be a sign of wisdom and victory, or they can bring prophecies of death and suffering, but at the same time could also be used to cure the illnesses they brought on. Why is this? One theory is that owls, because of their nocturnal nature, were hard to study and therefore are misunderstood. The fact that they thrive at night, a time when we are most vulnerable, adds to their mystery and the rumors of evil about them. I can only imagine how terrifying it must have been to, in the middle of the night, hear an owl call suddenly overhead while holding these beliefs. I was actually in Scotland about a year and a half ago, and we were staying in Skye, and it was this incredible inn, but it was legitimately in the middle of nowhere. And we're getting ready for bed, and outside, we suddenly heard an owl. And we couldn't see it but we could hear it and to us it just sounded amazing because I love owls but I can see that either if you didn't know what it was or if you held these beliefs that it foretold that you or someone close to you was going to die how terrifying that would actually be. Bobby Lake Tom writes in his book Spirits of the Earth that the wise old owl image is partly correct because owls have that kind of power but it can be used negatively. Quote, the owl is a favorite ally of sorcerers who have clairvoyant powers but use them for selfish desires, for ego, for profit, or to control and manipulate others, unquote. Keep in mind this book is called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. So, how does all of this information inform our understanding of this moment in the text? This is our first introduction to magic, to the wizarding world an owl fluttering by the window that no one notices. Does the owl represent wizards themselves or magic? What about the magical world as a whole? Are they wise and protectors or dangerous and cause death? Dumbledore, Dumbles as I like to call him, is the stereotypical image of the wise old wizard with a long beard and glasses. And in this chapter, he is being a protector of sorts, He's taking Harry away from this tragedy and leaving him with his aunt and uncle as a way to keep him safe from the eyes of the Wizarding World. But keep in mind that Harry's parents were just murdered, which is a clear sign that evil does exist in the magical world. There's this Voldemort guy who is so bad that people can't even bring themselves to say his name, and they're celebrating his disappearance after 11 years of him being at large. So perhaps the owls, with their duality, also show the duality of wizards. That there's good and bad in this world. Both people and magic. And keep in mind that we are introduced to the first glimpses of this world through a muggle lens. And through people who don't look kindly upon it. Who fear it showing up on their doorstep. There's an othering of wizards. Vernon using the terms her lot and their kind. This ties into owls being mysterious and thus feared. Even though they know about the world, they haven't lived it and don't know about it and remain scared of it. Just like the Ashaninka people say about demons being threats and living in their land, owls and wizards have always existed side by side to humans and muggles. We just don't see them because their lives are different from ours. Owls being nocturnal, wizards having their own communities on the outskirts of muggle society living just out of reach to be seen or understood. So what do we think this means for our journey? Will we meet both good and bad wizards? Are we going to learn about good and bad magic? What will Harry's relation be to both of these? Is the wizarding community going to stay on the peripheral of Muggle society? And will those beliefs of the Dursleys stay the same? We want to hear your thoughts. Email us at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us at First Years Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Please also rate and leave a review of this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on if you like what you hear. And a reminder that if you leave your name in Hogwarts House in your review, you will get a shout out on here and you'll win your house, House Points Toward the House Cup. If you're interested in seeing any of the resources used for this episode, you can find those in the show notes. Until then, happy reading. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah jones Dittmeyer. Most of our research for this episode comes from JSTOR. Those sources, as well as all others, can be found in our show notes and on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeier.info forward slash First Years Podcast. That's Sarah with an H, and Ditmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R.